Most people think they know humanity's history of space exploration. Yuri Alexievich Gagarin, major in the Soviet Air Force, the first man into space. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. But what if there was a lost history? Episodes that got ignored or forgotten that would make us rethink everything. It's been my mission as a space historian to recover those episodes and to learn the lessons from them to help us in the present and to shape the future. Jordan Bim is a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Chicago and a historian of science, technology, and medicine in relation to space exploration. In other words, He's a space historian. I was really interested in the astronaut, not as like a person, but as a concept or as an idea. And I was really interested in understanding the origins of that. And I quickly realized that meant, you know, not looking at biographies of famous astronauts like John Glenn or Neil Armstrong, but it meant looking at who was making those people, who was selecting them and who were the scientists behind uh, the field of space medicine. Bim's search led him to discover a lost chapter in our space narrative, one that reveals a very different way of understanding our relationship to space. And he sees a direct through line from the secret history to what's happening with the recent privatization of space travel. The space race between billionaires has a winner. He says we can't create a bright future for space exploration until we deal with this darker past. Space obviously is one of like the primary technical challenges of the 20th and 21st centuries, but space is also like a social, political, and cultural challenge, a human challenge. And some of the time those questions get bracketed off. We focus only on the technology and like what it takes to survive. But these social, political, and cultural questions of how we will live, how we will thrive, how we will you know, perform justice, uh, I think need, need attention. From the University of Chicago Podcast Network, this is Big Brains, a podcast about the pioneering research and pivotal breakthroughs that are reshaping our world. On this episode, the history of space flight from military to billionaires. I'm your host, Paul Rand. I've heard you say that your earliest memory of space was the Challenger disaster, and that was in 1986. What are your early recollections of that? Yeah, so this is actually my earliest childhood memory. That cold January morning, sitting in my parents' living room, watching our old you know, wood-paneled television and tuning in for the shuttle launch. Three, two, one, and liftoff. Liftoff of the 25th space shuttle mission, and it has cleared the tower. And then watching it explode on television. We have a report from the flight dynamics officer that the vehicle has exploded. And that was just seared into my mind. It's one of those moments in history that we call flashbulb moments. You know, those Hmm. moments where everyone remembers where they were. And then I also have a very clear memory of watching uh, the president address the nation that night. Ladies and gentlemen, I'd planned to speak to you tonight to report on the State of the Union. But the events of earlier today have led me to change those plans. President Ronald Reagan deliver what was uh, now called his challenger speech. We will never forget them nor the last time we saw them this morning as they prepared for their journey and waved goodbye and slipped the surly bonds of earth to touch the face of God. He quoted that famous poem from John Gillespie McGee, High Flight, where he said the astronauts had slipped the surly bonds to touch the face of God. And that 
line just sort of stuck with me. It was almost haunting. And a lot of the space historians who trained me say that they were sort of animated by the Apollo 11 moon landing, this sort of triumphant uh, celebration of American technology. You know, uh, I'm animated not by this sort of utopian vision, but by this dystopian worry about disaster, having my earliest memory be the Challenger explosion. Most histories of space start with Sputnik, sometimes called the opening shot of the space race. This story of the Russian satellite burst upon a startled world early in October. And this pushed the U.S. to develop its own space program to compete with the Soviet Union. And that program was NASA. But what I discovered doing my PhD research is that the founding of NASA, the launch of Sputnik, was not the start of our investment or our work on getting to outer space uh, in terms of science, technology, and medicine. That work actually began in the aftermath of World War II, almost 10 years earlier. And it wasn't part of NASA, which didn't exist then. It was in the U.S. military. Space history as an institution really begins with NASA. It's actually in the National Aeronautics and Space Act that creates NASA in 1958 that they should also have a history office. They knew at that time that what they were going to do was going to be historic. What didn't really get covered by this sort of institutionalized NASA history was that prehistory, that, that preceding decade of military research. Those chapters have sort of been forgotten. And specifically, I'm really interested in the field of space medicine, which is concerned with selecting and protecting astronauts. And that really got going in 1949 within the US Air Force. They were trying to define the ideal spacefaring body, but that body is not given by, you know, the, the extreme environment of outer space or the harsh environment of the space cabin interior or by the complex machinery and technology inside the cabin. Who we think of as right for space really comes from a social, political, and cultural expression of who has power and who we trust to uh, carry us forward into the future. So if you look at who we select as astronauts, going back to the first group of astronauts, the Mercury 7, selected in April 1959, they were all white male military test pilots with degrees in engineering. We are still on a path that has a very specific origin. And if we don't realize what the politics of that origin is, it's very hard to see our way off that path or to change tracks. So who were the people working in this early space program? Well, the answer is surprising. These early space medicine experts, these physiologists, these medical doctors and psychologists were actually former Luftwaffe experts brought over from Germany after World War II. And they didn't check their politics at Ellis Island or check them with the CIA and just sort of you know, leave them in a folder. They brought them to Texas, to the US Air Force's School of Aviation Medicine, and they imbued them into our idea of the astronaut. So most people, when they think of the Nazi role in the U.S. space program, they think of Werner von Braun and the technology of the rocket. What people don't realize is that Operation Paperclip was actually much, much larger than just rocket scientists. Over 1,500 German scientists were brought to the U.S., and not just rocket scientists, but wow. all manner okay. of, of, of medical experts, engineers. They ended up in all different parts of the U.S. military industrial complex, including forming the nucleus of space medicine in the U.S. Air Force. So a lot of people think of Werner von Braun and, and, and the, the rockets that took us to the moon being a Nazi creation, but they don't remember that it was also the astronaut who would ride inside that was also a creation of these Luftwaffe scientists. Namely, a scientist named Hubertus Strughold, who was formerly the head of aviation medicine research in Berlin for the Luftwaffe and was tied to a number of extremely heinous lethal concentration camp execution experiments. 
And these Nazi scientists brought those disturbing sensibilities to our space program as well. So um, my book project, Anticipating the Astronaut, uh, one chapter looks at high-altitude indigenous people who were studied by these former Luftwaffe scientists for their remarkable tolerance to altitude because they were seen as perhaps being more oxygen efficient in low oxygen environments, which is what they imagined the interiors of future spacecraft might be like. What's super interesting about this is that the Nazi scientist Bruno Balki, who was working for the U.S. Air Force, he went and studied these uh, miners in Morococha, uh, not because he wanted them to actually be astronauts, but because he thought that their physiology could be useful and that he could replicate their oxygen efficiency in a white male pilot. And this is sort of, you know, how can colonialism exist in space in a place where there's no existing population? It's this way. It's by enacting colonial relationships on Earth to get you there. Not only was Strughold interested in defining an ideal space-faring body, he was also interested in where they might go and what kind of life they may discover. Specifically focused on the planet Mars, and he invented this experiment called a Mars jar, which is essentially a small terrarium-like enclosure in which you replicate the harsh surface environment of the planet Mars. And then you add terrestrial life inside there and see if anything can survive to see if life on Mars was actually possible. And this was in the 1950s. This is far before most astrobiologists practicing today believe that their field was was started. If you ask an astrobiologist today about the origin of their field, they will tell you a totally different story that starts after the founding of NASA, and that involves these academic molecular biologists like Joshua Lederberg and Carl Sagan. The military origin of astrobiology has been essentially forgotten or erased. So bringing back Hubertus Strughold, the former Luftwaffe aviation medicine research director, and his invention of the Mars jar, which has now been adopted by the astrobiology community without understanding its origin or who its inventor was, for me, is a way to sort of make them confront these sort of military politics that are still imbuing their science without them even realizing it. And the idea of a Mars jar is that if you build that jar, you're sort of coveting the environment that you're simulating inside of it. You are imagining that the life inside of that is something that you can use, that that belongs to you. And that's a very specific relationship, something I call an instrumental relationship to extraterrestrial life. So if we find life on Mars, we are almost jumping ahead of ourselves to say, well, of course we should capture it. Of course we should study it. Of course we should use it to establish a base there. This, of course, is what the Air Force was interested in when they built those Mars jars. They weren't animated by those big questions that later exobiologists like Carl Sagan were interested in, like, are we alone in the universe? You know, what is our place in the cosmos? The Air Force astrobiologists, Hubertus Strughold and the people who built the Mars jar, they wanted to establish a U.S. Air Force base on Mars, and they wanted to know that if there is life on Mars, could they use that life to fuel their base? So that is a very specific view of extraterrestrial life, and I worry that we get ahead of ourselves. We don't stop and ask the question that should be asked two or three steps back. It's like somebody asking you, um, what type of meat do you want on your pizza, before asking you, what do you want for dinner? Jordan says these ideologies carried into the next phase of space exploration, which he calls the science phase. NASA gets founded in 1958 as a nominally civilian agency, but it is still extremely militaristic in its character. It imports all of that decade of military research, personnel, and materiel from that previous military era. And of course, uh, as we know, all of the first astronauts were military test pilots drawn from the ranks of the U.S. military. Uh, Things began to shift a little bit 
uh, after the lunar landing in 1969. Uh, the first scientist in space flies on the last mission to the moon in 1972. That was Harrison Jack Schmidt, who was a geologist. And then more and more scientist astronauts begin to fly in space in the 1970s, and then really in the 1980s when the space shuttle takes over as the main launch system. And now if we think about it today, you know, with rovers operating on Mars and PhD holding scientists doing research on the International Space Station, you know, the dominant paradigm right now is that space is a place for science and exploration. Okay. And so would you say we're still in the science phase or are we in another phase? where we are right now. We're still in, in the science paradigm, but we are at an inflection point. We're in a moment where things are changing. Sir Richard Branson and a crew of five others aboard Virgin Galactic's Unity spaceship, soaring to the edge of space. Prime delivery, the culmination of a lifelong dream for Jeff Bezos, who reached space with his brother Mark, Dutch teenager Oliver Damon, and 82-year-old veteran pilot Wally Fong. The uh, aerospace landscape in the United States has been reshaped with the emergence of these new actors, SpaceX, Blue Origin, Virgin Galactic. There are now three U.S.-based space companies that can send humans to outer space. So that is going to have a major effect going forward. It's unclear to me at this moment what exactly that will be, but the lessons of history tell me that a remade aerospace landscape like that will change what space is for, and that has always been tied directly to who space is for. All right, and so maybe this next phase is the billionaire phase. So we've got military phase, science phase, billionaire phase, and a and, uh, little tongue-in-cheek, but in the same breath, it's a whole new world, isn't it? Totally, and as a historian, I'm always interested in change over time, but I'm also interested in what stays the same over time. And so we can say that space may remains a very elite place. So we started off with space as a place for elite soldiers, pilots, and then it became a place for elite scientists. And now it's a place for the wealthy and the sort of financially elite. After the break, the future of space history, a deep dive on billionaires in space. Big Brains is supported by the University of Chicago Graham School. Are you a lifelong learner with an insatiable curiosity? Join us at Graham and access more than 50 open enrollment courses every quarter in literature, history, religion, science, and more. We open the doors of UChicago to learners everywhere. Expand your mind and advance your leadership. Online and in-person offerings are available. Learn more at graham.uchicago.edu slash bigbrains. So, billionaires in space. A lot of you may be rolling your eyes at this because isn't it just a stunt? It is a stunt, for sure. Um, at the same time, I think it's too narrow to focus only on the show and to say this is only a billionaire's contest because there is material change. There are now these new launch infrastructures existing in the U.S. Mm. that didn't exist before. And what could happen and what could be done with those could change the game of space exploration. It could make it sort of just this playground for the wealthy, similar uh, to, uh, you know, cruises to Antarctica or people who pay to get carried up Mount Everest and then call themselves a mountaineer or... <laughs> <laughs> or it, it could lead to, um, you know, a, a renewed investment in science and exploration, those sort of traditional things that we associate with space travel that right now, when it's just billionaires going to space, haven't really had, uh, you know, the spotlight treatment. Jeff uh, Bezos is the uh, 
the last one that's come down, and, and he was quite chatty when he got back to Earth and made a number of comments on different things, of one of which was the idea of we should take all of our polluting industries on Earth and move them into space. As, uh, as I see you shaking your head, what do you think about that, and, and where do you think some of these comments are coming from? Uh, I mean, that was just a really dumb thing to say. You know, that's not that's not, that's not solving a problem. That's shifting a problem. And this idea of like, where do we want to make our intervention? Do we want to make our intervention at the last possible second where we move these things off of Earth? Or do we want to solve these problems on the Earth so that they're not problems at all anymore? anywhere. And I just think it's so convenient that, of course, you know, what do you need to get those things off the earth, but his rockets that he's just ready to, uh, ready to sell right. you, right? So what a convenient answer. Obviously, to have industry in space, you'd need workers in space. And we all know how some workers have been treated here on earth. Imagine how they may be treated when they're millions of miles away from any central authority. You know, there's this uh, short story written in 1953 that I teach in my class, Explorations of Mars, called Crucifix Etium, about a worker on Mars involved in the terraforming project there who has to have their lungs replaced with uh, a mechanical ventilator in order to endure the harsh environment there. And as a worker, they are forced to sort of live in these harsh conditions and have their body altered. Higher status engineers get to live in a pressurized module and don't have to have their, their bodies altered at all. And in this story, the worker sort of comes to grips with this idea that they are making this world for somebody who is not them and that their, their body has sort of been sacrificed to this project. And this story is written in 1953, but it might as well have been written today about Elon Musk's plans on Mars or Jeff Bezos's plans on these off-world cylindrical space stations. Not only how will these workers be treated in, in the sense of like, how will they be compensated and that sort of thing, this idea of like, what will happen to their bodies? You know, how will they come back to Earth? How do you quit a job when you are on Mars? And, you know, stuff like that hasn't really been thought through. And when we did think it through in my class, Explorations of Mars, we reached some very, very dark conclusions. For example, if you if you want to quit your job in, on Mars, maybe the only way you can quit is with euthanasia. And that is an incredibly, incredibly dark future, which you know goes against this sort of dignity of life and the dignity of the individual that we have uh, grown accustomed to over the last you know four or five hundred years. So I, I worry that you know space obviously is one of like the primary te technical challenges of the 20th and 21st centuries, but space is also like a social, political, and cultural challenge, a human challenge. And some of the time those questions get bracketed off. We focus only on the technology and like what it takes to survive. But these social, political, and cultural questions of how we will live, how we will thrive, how we will, you know, perform justice, need attention. And that's uh, where, you know, historians, anthropologists, sociologists who focus on space come into play. And that's why our perspectives, I think, are so important in the future going forward. The privatization of space is quickly outpacing laws and regulations. I mean, who even owns space? So the 1967 Outer Space Treaty says that no one can own the moon or Mars. But at the same time, there have been laws passed in recent years that have made amendments that say that you can actually own, you know, resources extracted from an, an asteroid, for example. So this is where the field of space law, which is a, a pretty established field of, of legal uh, thought, is really going to have to make some leaps and bounds in the next couple of years, because I think the problem will be that activity in space will 
outpace the laws and regulations and that it will become sort of an actor's game of like who can do it first and then who can stop them. You know, if Elon Musk shows up on Mars and says, I am now the president of Mars, who is to stop him? So, uh, you know, there is sort of a might makes right uh, colonialist problem from history uh, right at our feet yet again. And this is where, uh, you know, the lessons of history can really come to bear. And there's all sorts of dangerous scenarios that we can imagine. What if there's no regulation, for example, around asteroid mining and an accident happens that causes a piece to crash into Earth? As these private organizations rush ahead, we're running out of time to create credible and powerful authorities to hold them accountable. I worry that it's almost too late to, to, to organize that. Like these companies just simply would not uh, recognize the authority. Like that's a, a move that I see happening all too often at various levels of U.S. political culture at this moment. You know, people not being held to account and rules being just totally flaunted. And then later on, maybe there is a slap on the wrist or something like that. But it's not justice. And I worry that we are quickly careening past that point when it comes to private space operations. We may be already past that. We have these charismatic, powerful billionaire leaders who have, you know, legions of followers. That That is a force to be reckoned with. And it's not like we can just create an international UN for outer space or something like that. And then they'll just say, okay, I I recognize you and I will be governed by you. Like there will be pushback on that. And I worry that the power relations right now are so skewed that we may be moving past that point faster than we, than we would want to. Hmm. Very interesting. Well, before we start getting into those kind of problems that there is the, you know, how are we going to get there? And particularly you talked about Musk and getting to Mars. Um, which is his vision. And he's also made the comment that on the path to doing this, a lot of people are going to die. What do you think about that idea? And is is that just part of the price that people are we're going to have to pay as humankind to figure out uh, what opportunities exist here? So when I heard him say that, I was really disappointed. I thought that that was a major failure of leadership. If I was someone who was thinking about going to Mars under his leadership, I would not want him to sort of be putting out there this idea before you even leave that for sure you're going to die, because that shows a sort of um, lessened regard for your life. (laughs) And if you watch that interview and he compares himself to Ernest Shackleton, the British explorer of Antarctica. And that was just a horribly terrible comparison to make because, of course, Ernest Shackleton went with his crew. He was a leader down there in Antarctica. And, of course, he got back everybody alive from that, that ill-fated mission. So this idea that, um, that he's sort of this Ernest Shackleton figure is, is a complete uh, misrepresentation. As far as I know, Elon Musk isn't planning to be one of the first ones to go to Mars. He's going to send other people there first and let them uh, bear the brunt of the risk. So what I would hope from our our leaders is this idea that, um, of course, there's going to be risks, but we should not assume and we should not have a low regard for the lives of the people that we are having go there for us. You know, we should say that, yes, there are risks, but I'm going to do everything I can to keep you alive because that's what's going to make them trust you as a leader. Where do we think we're headed? And if you had to say, if I look five years out, this is what I think we're going to see happening around us. This is a really interesting question because... If things continue the way they're going right now, and only the super wealthy are able to buy tickets on these launch systems, what you're going to have is sort of the mass production of an extremely wealthy individual who has also gone to space, and then probably will be very passionate about space exploration when they return. Uh, Whether or not they then open up their wallets for more than space tourism is something that I think is a possibility. So maybe these uh, billionaires recently returned from outer space will decide, hey, I want to start funding space science. I want to found my own 
own spaceflight company. You know, whether or not we want the elites, the, the, you know, uh, the wealthy elites to be holding the keys to outer space, I think is, is definitely another question. But there is the potential for more investment uh, from the private sector because these people have had spaceflight experiences. And of course, they don't have to just fund it with their own money. They can also advocate their political representatives for more public funding to NASA and other um, national spaceflight agencies, even if they are sort of being a bit reduced in their in, in their roles uh, as these sort of leftover organizations founded during the Cold War. And, 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 and do you look at this and say that we've kind of jumped the shark and that is now the private sector that's going to believe that they have to carry or they are going to carry the weight on this? Or do you think governments are going to be back to a Sputnik moment where they say we're losing? We've got to we've got to step it up all over again. I don't think that that will happen. Um, I, I worry about okay. I worry about the role of NASA going forward. NASA ha- has has done an incredible job with space science, robotic exploration of Mars, with the International Space Station, and I would love to see a uh, a, a renewed funding for NASA and a larger role for them uh, going forward in the future, almost as a check on some of these private companies as well. You know, we have right now the system of public private partnerships where NASA is collaborating with each of these companies, providing information, some launch facilities, expertise, even uh, the astronauts who fly on SpaceX missions so far have been NASA trained astronauts. So I would hope that NASA's role doesn't fade, but I worry that it will because there will be this sort of idea of redundancy. But what we don't see in these private companies is an interest in space science. You know, Elon Musk is not planning to send rovers to Mars to search for life. He's not interested in sending probes to Saturn uh, and the outer planets. Um, You know, I worry that space science will fall to the wayside. And this idea of space as a place for science and exploration, things that can actually benefit all of us in at least the accumulation and formation of knowledge, I worry that that piece will be left if we go just to the commercial spaceflight experience for the wealthy paradigm. And, and so if you were going to be giving counsel of saying, these are the things that have to be, before we go any further here, this is what has to be put into place, not only nationally, but globally. What, what advice would you give? I would say that we need to have a moment of deep introspection about what we are doing in space and what space is actually for and who it is for. You know, there is this gap between the rhetoric and the reality. If you think back to the, the lunar landing in 1969, they said space was for all humankind. But of course, that wasn't the case. We have not seen the benefits of space distributed equally. And of course, if we look at who has been able to actually go to space, that has not been an equal proposition either. So there needs to be a deep moment of introspection of like, why are we doing this? Who is it for? I worry that sort of the popular fascination with space is sort of attached to a utopian vision, which in fact has never been true and won't be true in the future. It's actually going to be a very sort of dystopian future in space. And this is something that I teach my students here. Space is not a utopian transformative place. Space is a place where all of our problems on Earth will be reproduced, if not amplified. If you're getting a lot out of the important research shared on Big Brains, there's another University of Chicago Podcast Network show you should check out. It's called Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast provides a fresh perspective on the biggest political stories, not through opinions and anecdotes, but through rigorous scholarship, massive data sets, and a deep knowledge of theory. 
If you want to understand the political science behind the political headlines, then listen to Not Another Politics Podcast, part of the University of Chicago Podcast Network. Big Brains is a production of the UChicago Podcast Network. If you like what you heard, please give us a review and a rating. The show is hosted by Paul M. Rand and produced by me, Matt Hodap. Thanks for listening.